This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You want to know, you want to know why stocks roared higher today? Dow gaining 145 points, S&P climbing 0.88%, hitting a new all-time high. The Nasdaq pole vaulting 1.32%, another record. I say blame the short sellers. Look. I know the shorts catch a lot of flack by betting against stocks in the hope that they'll go lower. We all acknowledge that short sellers serve an important function in the stock market, but it's easy to frame them as the villains when stocks go down. That's true. Occasionally, even for me, I do it. I shouldn't. I used to make a lot of money shorting stocks at my old hedge fund. I should be more ecumenical. But that's not the whole story. Days like today remind us that short sellers can serve as rocket fuel for a bull market. That's right. In other words, when the shorts finally throw in the towel and give up on the stocks they love to hate, these stocks tend to explode higher. They have to, because that's what happens when you have to cover your short. Exhibit A, Hasbro. Hasbro, which we'll hear from later in the show. Monopoly money, not. Here's a stock that's been a total punching bag, just a fabulous annuity short like shooting fish in a barrel. Today, I reported an amazing quarter, and the stock vaulted more than 14%, as the shorts had to capitulate en masse. And when they give up, they need to buy back stock to close their position, hence the spectacular 12-point run. Buy, 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 Shooting fish in a barrel? Not. Why did the shorts love to hate Hasbro? Did they? Did they not like Nerf? Was their Play-Doh taken away from them when they were little people? Was that what happened? Did they cheat at Monopoly? No! Because ever since the surprise liquidation of Toys R Us, the toy makers been stuck with shadow box and excess inventory. Nobody knew that Toys R Us would have just closed its doors. We figured it would turn itself around, eventually emerge from bankruptcy. And when it did, I when it said just closed its doors, went under. Not only did Hasbro lose a bunch of retail outlets, but the industry was flooded with excess supply. And that's been a real problem. When the doors closed on an institution like Toys R Us, you might think someone would know where all that inventory ended up, but it was impossible to tell. So for several quarters in a row, Hasbro was indeed caught flat-footed with too much merchandise. This is an incredibly well-run company, but until the toy maker worked its way through the glut, there was just no way for them to predict the future. Now, we knew these issues had to be transitory, right? There's only so much inventory out there, but many investors gave up on Hasbro anyway. Only it was just too hard, and the short sellers, well, they ran wild because when it dropped, it dropped huge. Until today. Until today, when the company reported a spectacular upside surprise, earning 21 cents, Wall Street was looking for an 11-cent loss. 
The shorts were gaffed deeper than when my wife hooked a red snapper off of an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico during the Tarpon Rodeo. Now, the shorts didn't need to get squeezed like this. The last time Hasbro CEO Brian Goldner came on the show, he told us the inventory was now under control and it was time to play offense. Did anyone listen to him? Did you listen to him? I listened to him. Now, even if you didn't believe him, all you had to do was listen to Mark Butler, the CEO of Ollie's Bargain Outlet Holdings, who came on this show and explained to us that he had a good winner, in part because he had so much toy inventory from the Toys R Us liquidation. See, you have to put together the mosaic, the puzzle. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle doing this right. And that's where all that inventory ended up. That was your all clear for Hasbro. It's when the stock went from being an annuity short to a terrific long like it used to be. And I bet Hasbro's got a lot more room to run. Remember, they have licensing deals with Disney, meaning they're going to make a killing from the new Avengers movie. That's going to be the biggest movie ever. And the new Star Wars out later this year. More on that. And Fortnite games later. The second short going awry. Oh, my. Oh, my. This one. This one is just, it's shaking people to their bones. Qualcomm. Up another $4.83 today. Now, a little over a week ago, Qualcomm was at the precipice. The long-awaited Apple lawsuit was finally going to court, and everything was in the balance. This all started when Apple sued Qualcomm for being a monopolist. Because Qualcomm's technology is the basis for most wireless communication, it's hard to get around their patents. But Qualcomm argued that they were simply doing what they've always done best, designing amazing semiconductors. If Apple won the case, Qualcomm could have been in dire straits. The company pays big dividend. That would have been called into question. The earnings estimates would have been slashed. The stock would have been obliterated. The smart money was betting that Apple would win because so many companies have challenged Qualcomm for monopolistic pricing over the years. But man, if Qualcomm won, this stock would suddenly go from being expensive and dangerous to incredibly cheap. So what happens? On the very first day of the trial, Apple decides to settle with Qualcomm on very generous terms. And both stocks have been on fire ever since, one on fire more than the other. Qualcomm in particular has been roaring this was a $57 stock last Monday. It's now an 86 and change stock, up another 5.8%. Hey, guys, that is better than a takeover. Better. Why does Qualcomm keep roaring higher? Because it was one of the most heavily shorted stocks I've seen in ages. When it went from dog to darling in one afternoon, the shorts were eviscerated, and they've been desperate to cover a buyback stock to close out the positions ever since. But it turns out there just wasn't that much supply between the 50s and the 80s 50s when, when Qualcomm was trading, when Faber broke the news, right? And where it is now. I, I don't think it's even done yet. Qualcomm's a fabulous company. Without the Apple case weighing on its stock, it deserves to go still higher, especially since Apple's going to keep buying their chips for the iPhone. It's become the way to play 5G, and everyone wants to be looking for a way to play 5G. What else? All right, how about Twitter? Over the past year, investors have gotten used to the stink of failure as Twitter tries to clear out the trolls and make its platform more hospitable. Hey, you see Jack Dorsey with the president. How about that? What the heck was that about? Anyway, you had to figure there was a point where everything would be scrubbed clean and there are no more issues with scatological postings or horrendous haters who just keep changing their names and never let up. Tell me about it. But in the meantime, Twitter stock was very tough to own. Then today, the company reports a magnificent quarter and the stock pole vaults more than 15%. This was the quarter where advertisers chose Twitter for their centerpiece, like HBO did with Game of Thrones. This was the quarter where like, uh, sports highlights, like every home run that's hit, becomes mainstay. This was the quarter, how Twitter was able to blow away the numbers. And you know what? Again, not done. I predict many upgrades. Finally, there's Kohl's, KSS. Two weeks ago, we had CEO Michelle Goss on the show. 
And she would told us a wonderful story about a little, little teeny, teeny bit uh, pilot program with Amazon that was going incredibly well. Amazon was basically using Kohl's as a depot for its customers to return things in person without having to package them up. Kohl's got the benefit of having all those potential shoppers walk through the store to get to the Amazon depot. It provided a huge boost for the 100 locations where they're currently doing this. Yesterday, J.P. Morgan uh, happened to cut its estimates for Kohl's. It's basically off the first quarter, same store sales growth. I mean, everyone kind of knew that if you're listening to the show, right? Uh, it, was, it was the most well-known shortfall that I've come across, but it didn't matter. The stock still mistakenly got hammered. The shorts were all over the darn thing. And why not? Is there anything worse than owning a department store stock? No. Wrong. Today, we learned that Amazon has obtained warrants that once vested will allow it to take up a 1% stake in Kohl's. And they're expanding the return depot to all of the department store's 1,100 locations. It's a home run, people. Talk about it if you can't beat them. Join them. That's why Kohl's vaulted nearly 12% today. Shorts were crushed. It's not done. Yet the bottom line is the short sellers provided the ammo for today's biggest winners. Hasbro, Qualcomm, Twitter, Kohl's. Their pain is your game. So stop bad-mouthing them. If you own these stocks today... I think you owe them an attaboy because they made you a fortune. Ricky in Pennsylvania. Ricky. Jim, booyah. Booyah, Ricky. Hey, uh, the stock I was calling about was Tesla. Right. Um, it's, yeah, right now it's trading at 264 its share, and it's bounced off these levels before. Uh, with the stock carrying a uh, 25% short flow, do you think the, stock, the shorts start to cover from here? And it trades higher, or do you think it's going to continue to drop? I think Tesla is a total battleground. I don't think there's any way you can foresee what will happen. That will produce many different people on Twitter saying that I am a wishy-washy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know what? Go ahead. I'm tired. Let's go to Ann in California. Ann. Hi, Jim. Ann, how are you? Thank you for taking my call. What's up? Good, I'm great, thank you. Um, I have a question about Merck, MRK. Sure. Um, it's been going down a lot compared to its peers. I mean, the whole tech, the health sector's been right. hit recently. But I was wondering, is there something going on with Merck in particular? Because I own some, and I'm still up on it. And I was wondering if I should just hold on and accumulate and, more. And I am close to Merck. I know that Ken Fraser's doing a great job. It yields three percent. Key Trude is amazing. You are getting an opportunity because of some ridiculous rotation to buy, buy, buy. And you've got to take advantage of it. All right. Let's. Oh, wow. Well, there we go. Uh, thank you, Shorts. Some of today's biggest winners, Hasbro, Qualcomm, Twitter, Kohl's, have the short sellers to thank for today's terrific action. Thank you, short sellers. Oh, man, money tonight. There was no joy in toilet in 2018 as Hasbro suffered fallout from the Toys R Us bankruptcy. But could today's move higher after earnings signal it's turned a corner? I'm talking to the CEO. Then we're off and running this earnings season with more than 140 S&P 500 companies scheduled to report this week alone. But tonight I want to circle back on one of the biggest success stories of last week. I'll reveal it. And I haven't forgotten it. It's time to look back. And it's been called the Uber of healthcare. So could a private player like Doctor on Demand be the answer to cost containment in the industry? I'm going to get an update from the CEO. So stay with... Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. 
Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Some stocks are such wild traders, it's like they give you a whiplash every earnings season. Take Hasbro, which has reported some real nasty quarters through no fault of its own since Toys R Us filed for bankruptcy a year and a half ago, ultimately flooding the industry with excess inventory. Every time it seemed like the toy maker had gotten over the worst of the issues, bam, they report another shortfall. At the beginning of the year, Hasbro was trading at a multi-year low. And hardly anyone wanted to stick their neck out on this one for fear of getting their head chopped off. But CEO Brian Goldner kept reassuring us that the problems were temporary and the turnaround would soon be at hand. He told a terrific story when he came on this show February 11th. I, know, I don't know about you, but I felt like, you know what? The bottom is here. And I sure hope you took him seriously and agree with me. Because when Hasbro reported this morning, they shot the lights out. Companies earning 21 cents. Wall Street was looking for 11 cent loss. Much higher than expected sales. In response, the stock surged more than 12 bucks or a little over 14%, cruising back into triple-digit territory. So could this thing have more upside now that the comeback has arrived? Let's check in with Brian Goldner, the chairman and CEO of Hasbro, to get a better sense of this amazing quarter and his company's turnaround. Mr. Goldner, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Well, Brian, i got to tell you, you told our viewers that this was about to happen. And there are not just one surprise. There were many surprises that occurred this quarter that were so great. Could you tick down a couple of them so people realize how many things went right for Hasbro this quarter? Well, we saw good growth across many segments of our business. Our franchise brands were up. Our gaming business was up. Our emerging brands were up. Our partner brands were down a bit, but we view that as timing as we get into the second quarter and Subsequent quarters, we have an amazing array of Disney-led initiatives. And then, uh, you know, we also saw that uh, Magic the Gathering, Magic the Gathering Arena, grew in the quarter. And we're seeing the traction around Magic the Gathering Arena. Our gamers are playing the game. More than 700 million games have been played. People spending about eight hours a week playing. And so we're seeing some great progress. In our international markets, our European business has moved ahead. We expected to see a turnaround in international markets, and they were up absent Forex in the quarter. And uh, we're seeing that kind of progress in a growth of our retail footprint. So overall, feeling that we've made that kind of progress that we wanted to make toward profitable growth for 2019. Could you speak a little more about uh, Magic Gathering? I'm sure that, that 700 million has kind of lost some people. That's a, that's a kind of a zero to 2,000 uh, miles per hour situation. I was shocked at how quickly this thing's taken off. Well, we've been growing Magic the Gathering for a number of years in tabletop. And what's been so heartening is we've been investing to build our digital capability as a company and to engage with gamers. We're now in beta on Magic the Gathering Arena, and it's continuing to increase in retention, and engagement and monetization. We were just at PAX East in Boston, which is, uh, was a mythic invitational 
event for Magic. It was a million dollar prize pool in our esports league. And we're seeing players engage with the brand. It's uh, very heartening to see how both tabletop as well as Magic Arena Digital is growing. Uh, we're getting an array of new players. We're also getting uh, a lot more in-store players because remember Magic began as a face-to-face -face game. And so it's the entire ecosystem that's growing and we'll roll Magic Arena out around the world. You'll see a number of new events and esports initiatives and new digital initiatives. And then an array of suite of other games around Magic the Gathering, a more casual game uh, for mobile that will come later called Valor's Reach, and that's in test market right now. All right, Brian, how is it possible that uh, games of my generation, uh, Play-Doh and Monopoly, or something like Transformers, which seems so old, are brand new? The numbers are extraordinary. How does this happen? Well, we continue to reinvent, reimagine, and reignite these brands. We're always bringing new stories and new characters based on proprietary consumer insights. So for Transformers, obviously, last holiday we had Bumblebee as a feature film. Now we're in the home entertainment window. We saw incredible results around the world, including in China. So at Transformers brand, we continue to tell new stories. In fact, we're now partnering with CCTV, National Chinese Television, for a story that combines a Transformers mythology with Chinese mythology, a series called Transformers Neja, that will air first time since the 1980s, Transformers on television in primetime in China. And that's an area that we're really growing. We want to continue to tell stories, engage digitally, and continue to reinvent, reignite these brands. Well, I got to hand it to you in terms of just new storylines. Monopoly Cheaters Edition? Monopoly Fortnite? How are these doing? I, I know they're doing quite well. And then, of course, we have our Game of Thrones edition. We have some new editions coming later this year. Uh, we'll have a Lion King edition for Monopoly. But just good old, what we call number nine Monopoly is also growing. People want to be back and playing games face to face. They want the social interaction. Monopoly has an array of new games. Our overall games business was up 20%. And we feel like we can continue to reinvent and reignite in that category as well. I want you to talk a little bit about the kind of people you can get because of what you do in terms of social things. Uh, one of the things that we've been working on in 2019, identifying the companies that do well and therefore by nature actually do well for shareholders. You've had a phenomenal record of corporate shareholder responsibility. And I bet you the people you get are people that you would not otherwise be able to get if you weren't doing things like this. You know, we're very proud of the fact that we've been named the world's most ethical company for our eighth year in a row. Uh, that we're a, a top corporate citizen. And in fact, we're building incredible capabilities, people coming to work from us from all over the world. We're opening and increasing offices around the world in uh, Los Angeles. We have an incredible games office is where Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons exists outside of Seattle, Washington, and, and growing around the world. And then, of course, our, our home headquarters here in Rhode Island, bringing in new capability and half our employees to the company are new over the last five to six years. So always thinking about those new skill sets, engaging with a, an array of audiences and being open to everyone who can join Hasbro as an equal opportunity employer. There's something that is non-cynical about the people who are successful. And I think that you are completely non-cynical in what you bring to the party. You must be getting the cream of the crop of people who want to do something other than just program. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Our mantra is making the world a better place for children and their families. 
and we all give back to the communities around the world. As we go into new markets, one of the first things we look for are ways to give back to those communities. And, th and that's really just the watchword of everybody in the company. We have an amazing team. I have an amazing array of colleagues. And it's really the team that's performed at such a high level this quarter. They've gotten traction in the market uh, much earlier than we had expected. We got some gains uh, that we've certainly expected throughout the year, but it's great to see in the first quarter. So we can get aligned with our constituents and they can see what we see, which is a return to profitable growth this year. And we expect as we continue, if a few more things break right, that 2020 can look like 2017 and we'll be back on track and beyond the Toys R Us disruption. Okay, thank you so much to Brian Golder, Chairman, President, and CEO of Hasbro. This stock is not done going higher. Man, money's back after the break. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity, or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. So many very smart people get the stock of PepsiCo so wrong. Last week, the beverage and snacking titan reported a blowout quarter, and the stock soared to new all-time highs. But there were legions of skeptics who doubted this company every step of the way. we got to dig down on this. we got to figure out, well, how, how could they have gotten it so wrong? Well, roughly a year ago, investors gave up on PepsiCo en masse, but Judy Hong of Goldman Sachs capturing the zeitgeist by downgrading the stock to, to a sell. To a sell. Look, would you sell this stuff? To a sell. Pretty much writing off the company's ability to turn itself around. And even as the stock started rebounding in recent months, the bear attacks just kept coming. Yet under both the excellent old leadership of Indra Nui and the new leadership of Ramon LaGuardia, who recently took her place as chairman and CEO, Pep has defied the pessimists and come out on top. So how did they do it? And more importantly, why couldn't the Bears see this coming? Apropos of what I talked about at the top of the show. Okay, as 2018 kicked off, investors were worried about PepsiCo. We've seen a slowdown in North American soda business, which accounts for roughly a third of Pep's sales. This d- division saw a 2% decline in 2017. And by the time 2018 rolled around, the problems seemed to be getting worse. Thanks to changing consumer taste, driven by younger generations who disdain preservatives and high fructose corn syrup, we were seeing a major shift away from soda toward things like La Croix. That's that flavored sparkling water that my family likes so much. In February of last year, PepsiCo even launched their own La Croix uh, competitor, Bubbly, which I like so much. But at the same time, not many people believed it would be a big hit. They were wrong. When the company issued its first full year forecast for 2018, management told us that their organic growth would be at least in line with the previous year's 2 to 3% number. Well, that was a pretty tepid forecast at the time. I mean, Coca-Cola just guided for 4% organic growth. Of course, if you actually listen to the conference call, which most people do not, the February of 2018 call, CEO Indra Nui assured us, she assured us that she could turn around the troubled North American beverages business. Listen to this. Quote, its performance still has tremendous room to improve, and we are taking the right steps to realize these, those opportunities, end quote. Basically, she asked you to give her the benefit of the doubt. But foolishly, most of the people and many of these analysts, they wouldn't give it to her. 
At the same time, PEP was troubled by the same issues that weighed on the entire industry. You know, the skyrocketing transportation costs, the strong dollar, rising interest rates that made high-yielding dividend stocks like this one seem less attractive relative to Treasury bonds. So roughly a year ago, right before PepsiCo was set to report its first quarter earnings for 2018, Judy Hong, very good analyst of Goldman Sachs, downgraded the stock from neutral to sell, citing its unimpressive forecast relative to Coca-Cola, its market share losses in the beverage space, and, quote, limited strategic optionality near term, end quote, which is kind of Wall Street speak for there's not much management can do to change the narrative. When PepsiCo delivered its results, the headline numbers were solid, but the North America soda business, it's true, not so hot. The bears felt vindicated and the stock got crushed, only sinking to $95 at its lows last spring. Wow, that is a big sell-off. Since then, though, the stock has gradually worked its way higher, but there have been a couple of false starts along the way. When the company announced it was acquiring SodaStream, for instance, the home carbonation machine maker, for $3.2 billion in August, Wall Street wasn't exactly thrilled. Last October, Indra Nui stepped down with Ramon LaGuardia, a longtime PepsiCo executive, taking the helm. And her final quarter wasn't picture perfect. While PepsiCo delivered a top and bottom line beat, the company trimmed its full-year earnings forecast from 570 down to 565 But mostly that was because of the strong dollar and, yes, those pesky high freight costs. That's not much of a cut, but investors freaked out, and the stock ultimately sank from 115 to 105 at its October lows. What a buy. And while the stock managed to rebound over the next couple of months, it broke down in late December along with everything else, falling back to 105 by Christmas. Now you know the whole trajectory. Fast forward to February. LaGuardia MCs his first conference call as CEO. And while the headline numbers were solid, 4.6% organic revenue growth, his full-year forecast was, let's say, uh, how about complicated? LaGuardia guided for PepsiCo to earn 550 per share this year, well below the 587 number the analysts were looking for, and down 3% from 2018. Yet he was talking about a down year, something that terrifies money managers, particularly for safety stocks like PepsiCo. However, LaGuardia did a fantastic job explaining this ugly number. It's a combination of strong dollar hurting PepsiCo's foreign business and the company making some key investments in the future. He also assured us Pep's earnings would start growing again by 2020. Once again, PepsiCo asked for the benefit of the doubt. More importantly, while the earnings guidance was not so hot, the revenue guidance was fabulous. LaGuardia told us to expect 4% organic revenue growth for 2019. For a massive consumer packaged goods company like PepsiCo, organic growth is everything. And the difference between a low single-digit number and a mid-single-digit number is enormous. Remember, everyone freaked out at the beginning of last year when they talked about a number in the 2.3% range. On balance, investors liked it. The stock rallied from 112 to 115. But it didn't take long for the bears to start coming out of the woodwork again. This time, it was Credit Suisse. So March 6th, they initiated coverage on PepsiCo with a sell in a note titled Mountain of Things to Do, D-E-W. Hey, listen, if there is one thing, if there's one thing the Wall Street's good at, it's coming up with terrible puns. They cited a laundry list of negatives. PepsiCo needs to constantly invest in its businesses just to tread water. The struggling beverage division, newfound competition, the snack space. Oh, give me a break. Frito-Lay is unchallenged. And uncertainty about Ramon LaGuardia's ability to hit his own targets. Pep was asking for our trust. Credit Suisse says don't give it to him. For a few weeks, that report kept a lid on the stock, although it only started running in late March, in part because lower interest rates made PepsiCo's dividend more attractive. They've always paid a great dividend, something that's bolstered most of the staples. And sure enough, those buyers were rewarded when the company reported last Wednesday. This time, PepsiCo posted a strong $0.05 earnings beat off a 92-cent basis, higher than expected revenue, driven by a magnificent 5.2% organic growth rate. When I saw this, people, I was, I was driving in and I was jumping up and down. I could not believe they had this firepower. And while LaGuardia only reiterated his full-year forecast, they don't tend to raise the first year, believe me. The terrific beat made it seem like maybe he's simply being conservative in order to under-promise and over-deliver. I agree with that. 
So how do they deliver these numbers? Oh, I like the whole mosaic. Remember how PepsiCo has been investing in all the money to turn its business around? You know how Ingenui and LaGuardia both kept asking us to give them the benefit of the doubt? It's because they had a plan, and the plan is working. Frito-Lay is on fire. The troubled North American beverage business again saw an acceleration versus the previous quarter thanks to new packaging formats, uh, glass over plastic, and new products like Bubbly, that's with one B, by the way, and LifeWater, L-I-F-E-W-T-R. As he said on the conference call, innovation is really working very well in North American beverage, end quote. In response, the stock surged to new highs, and the bears at Goldman Sachs forced to upgrade the stock from sell to neutral. At what point do you think they have to go to a buy if it goes down 30 cents, don't you think? Here's the bottom line. When a company with a phenomenal long-term track record, one that's doubled the dividend over the past decade, asks you to trust them, and many of the analysts throw up their hands, you know what I say? I say, trust them. No, there's no way management can turn things around. That's what you hear from them. Suspend your disbelief. If you gave PepsiCo the benefit of the doubt, you now have some terrific gains. And even after this move, I still like the stock for the long term because this team has proven that they can innovate on the fly. I like Coca-Cola's number today, but PepsiCo's the one. Ryan in New York. Ryan. Hey, Jim. After being a longtime investor in Hain and Irwin Simon and seeing the stock price drop along with accounting problems and his dominance in the organic category being eroded, how do we view Irwin now with Alfrier and do we still invest in him? Because I'm an investor that held on way too long with Hain. Well, you know what we have to do? Is it really fair that we judge him without having him back on the show? I think that's the way to approach this because I share your skepticism. I see this stock as a $2 billion stock, and I want to know, is that right? So, Erwin Simon, I'm not asking you to defend your life. I am saying you got to come on because I don't know if I like the stock. Okay, let's go to Spencer in Ohio. Spencer. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. Not a problem. What do you think of ticker OI? Do you think their returnable glass model positions them well for a long time? Oh, you know what? I I am so pro the use of glass. I mean, I've even talked to James Quincy from uh, Coca-Cola about returning more Coke bottles. But the problem is that plastic, like Dow, it's not going away. And glass is not coming back as fast. So I have to say OI... I can't recommend it, as painful as that is, because I'd love to recommend stocks just on the basis of like, wow, I wish we used glass. Uh, I I, I can't do that. Uh, My job is to help you make money, not just preserve the environment. Now, if you gave PepsiCo the benefit of the doubt when they said they think turn things around, well, you would be looking at a super nice game. And I still like PepsiCo for the long term. This management team is bringing its A game. Don't forget, never underestimate Frito-Lay. I like the hot ones. Much more mad money ahead including a private player that's revolutionizing the healthcare sector. No, I'm not talking about some miraculous new drug. I'm talking about Doctor On Demand. You're not going to want to miss this. Then, how can we get people back into atone stocks instead of hiding so long on the darn sidelines? I'm giving my take. And all your calls are rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Lately, there's been some major turbulence in the healthcare cohort, as many of the Democrats running for president want to implement some form of single-payer system. And while that might seem like a long shot, it would mean many of these companies make a lot less money. 
But I think this is an important conversation. Americans pay more for health care than any other country, but it's not like we get better outcomes. In many cases, we have worse outcomes. That's one reason we're seeing a massive industry-wide push for greater efficiency. And one of the ways that's happening is with telemedicine. Consider the case of Doctor on Demand. It's a privately held company that bills itself as the nation's leading virtual care provider. Basically, the platform lets you see a doctor over the web because there are a lot of problems that can be handled with a simple video conference. Doctor on Demand average wait time, five minutes. Now, tomorrow, they're launching a new health plan in partnership with Humana called On Hand that's all about providing primary care over the web, which could be a very, very big deal. So tonight, let's take a closer look with Hill Ferguson. He's the CEO of Doctor on Demand. Find out more about what this service means for you, for business, and for the broader healthcare sector. Hill, welcome to the show. Thank Good to you. see you, sir. Thank you. All right, so what happens beginning tomorrow with, with Humana when someone wants to visit a doctor? Sure. So tomorrow we're announcing a new health plan in conjunction with Humana called On Hand. It'll be the first ever virtual only plan design, which will enable uh, members to see a primary care doctor on their time. We're bringing care outside the four walls and into the home or into the car or into the office, wherever you are, so that you can see your primary care physician whenever you need them. What percentage of illnesses or complaints can really be handled over the web? We resolve about 92% of our cases today. For that remaining 8%, with this new plan design, we'll be leveraging Humana's network uh, specialists and other facilities. So patients will come see us first. If they need to see a specialist, we will refer them into that specialist. Uh, if they need to get imaging or an x-ray or an MRI, we'll help make that happen for them. So we're really acting as a concierge. Well, there's this bizarre disconnect between what I hear in Washington and what you're doing. Something between single payer, which would be revolutionary and probably unlikely, and what uh, and just like the full course ridiculous nature we have now would be you. Why are why is your company not part of the conversation when I hear from the president uh, presidential candidates? It should be, right. and I, and I think they're starting to catch on. Um, they uh, are very much looking to expand access and lower costs. It's nice. typically hard to do at the same time, but telemedicine is one of those rare things that does both. It opens up access and it lowers costs of the system. So I think it is starting to become on the radar of our government. You see the new uh, reimbursement acts in Medicare Advantage coming out in 2020. Uh, hopefully that's a sign of more to come. Um, and it's all about how you get reimbursed in this industry. That's what drives behavior. Right now, uh, what's the difference between you and Teladoc who we've had on or just very similar circumstances or similar sure. So we were founded about six years ago. Um, our model is, we're, think of us as a national practice of employed physicians. Okay. So we employ primary care physicians, psychiatrists, and psychologists, which is part of the reason that, that puts us in a great position to, to do virtual primary care. Mm-hmm. We're not a network of independently contracted docs that okay. talk to patients on the phone. Right. We're video, we're messaging, and phone with employed physicians, which means our patients can come back and see the same doctor, so they can actually develop a relationship. Now, I think that one of the things that has caused more bankruptcies in our country than anything else is healthcare. And when I listen to how much the premiums have gone up for healthcare plans, I realize that that's one of the reasons why America is not keeping up, why middle class is being hurt. What do you have to say to them with your company? Yeah, it's, it's a real problem. The cost of care is exorbitant. Right. And the quality of care is not improving along with those costs. One of the things that's so exciting about this news with Humana, you know, Humana's been innovating for 30 years right. in this industry. This new plan is going to be priced at almost half the cost of a traditional care plan. Uh, so we're able to take 
uh, a lot of the delivery costs out of this model, which which will pass through into premiums for uh, for members. So we're doing. Uh, something in this area with this new plan we're launching. Well, well, people are going to listen to this, and tomorrow they're going to call Humana and going to say, "Look, I'm tra- I'm being I'm paying five thousand dollars a month for this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, can I get in this thing? Uh, what, 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 how do you get in? How yeah. do you become part of it? Well, I hope people are calling them. <laughs> they will yeah, because so that, I know it, what the I have my pulse on this. Yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, this is this is the big graveyard of finance for people in this country. Yes. So we'll be rolling it out this summer. Uh, I think it will be met with a lot of positivity, particularly with small businesses, many of whom are on the sidelines. They can't afford to cover their employees. Right. And so this plan is very specifically targeted at that population. So it's very affordable, very accessible. Um, Why would doctors want to be involved? Yeah, so doctors are becoming more and more burnt out in this industry. Our doctors come to us with 15 years experience. They're disenchanted with the system. They don't like spending three hours a day working in a health record that is optimized for billing and not for patient care. And so they come to us for uh, a new way to practice medicine, one that's all about patient care, one that simplifies their life. Uh, We don't ask them to do a lot of administrative things that they have to do in a brick and mortar setting. And so on our platform, they can join our practice and just help patients. And all the administrative burdens uh, are removed and taken on by our by our technology and our practice. One last question: uh, Hospitals, emergency rooms, deluge with patients. When you're full out working, what does it mean for emergency rooms? Yeah, so we, we actually treat 90% of what can be treated, what comes into the emergency room today, 90%. right? 90%. And so much of that is causing problems for people who do come in with a real emergency, so they're overcrowded. And, um, and that's a, a primary use case of our service today. Oh, I don't know. I hear these things and I listen to what single, single payer never going to happen. I think, I think that perfect is the enemy of good. And you guys <laughs> are offering good service. That's Hill Ferguson, CEO of Doctor on Demand. Big deal tomorrow with Humana. Understand it's not public yet, but stay tuned. Man Money's back here for the break. It is time! It's time for the Nightmare! Because there's rap cars holding on to the same and then the light round's over. Are you ready, Skate? Dad, it's time for the light round! Because we're going to discover Scott in North Carolina. Scott! Hey, Booyah, Jim. How's Booyah, it going? Scott. Hey, I'd like to ask you about one. I'm in the used car business in Raleigh, North Carolina, and every customer that comes in the door says, C-A-R-G, car gurus, is what brought them in the door. I really? bought their stock last year after they had an IPO, and they're just our best performing uh, form of advertisement. I'd like to know what you thought about them. Well, I got to tell uh, you, my viewers, more than anybody else. including you, Scott, are smarter than I am. I like CarMax, but we are going to do a deep dive on car gurus because of exactly what you just told us, because you teach us. Thank you. Let's go to Lori in Texas. Lori. Hey, blah, 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 booyah from Austin, Texas, Jim. Oh, I'm man, I love girl. Austin, Texas. What's happening? I'm, I'm a big gold. I love gold. All right, what do you think about IAG? I am gold. Well, you know what? I am not gold. Uh, I am Barrett gold. I like to, I like the work of Dr. Uh, Mark Bristow. I like G-O-L-D. That would be the way I'd go. Let's go to Daniel in Florida. Daniel. Hey, Jim, I had a quick question on Align Technologies. Maker of Invisalign had a big drop last year. Seems to be moving up now. What is your thought? I had thought that the time, you know, look, they've got Danaher's uh, Dental Vision against them, Business against them. They've got 3M against them. And you know what? Align still owns the market. 
I was too negative. A line has got it going. How about we go to Frank in New York? Frank. Frank. Hi, this is Frank out in Staten Island. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Frank. I want to find out about your thoughts about Johnson & Johnson. I think Johnson & Johnson is the earnings, the fundamentals versus, okay, listen up, versus talc. And I happen to be a believer that J&J will prevail. Now, I know that is a minority view, and it's why J&J keeps failing at 140, but my travel trust owns it, and we're sticking with it. Let's go to Avery in Georgia, please. Avery. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Uh, my question is about Electronic Arts, EA. You know, the they gaming love. stocks, they are just a battleground, and I don't want to be in a battleground. It's too hard. Let's go to Art, Rhode Island. Art. Hi, how are you tonight, Jim? I am good. How about you, Art? Good. I would like to get a little information from you on Enlink Midstream. It's a good midstream, but I got to tell you something. These stocks are like wasting assets. I no longer recommend any pipeline stocks. I'm trying to save people money, and I can't if I recommend a pipeline stock. Let's go to Kevin in Florida. Kevin. Hi, Jim. My stock is Next Era Energy. Oh, I love a growth utility, and that is one of the best. I should be recommending it more. I'm too focused on Dominion and AP. I should put NEE in there. Jack in California. Jack. Big booyah, Jim. My question is on Baidu, B-I-D-U. Oh, Baidu's good. Now, we know... We know that Baidu has got a very strong track record, uh, but Alibaba's my favorite. Baidu is my second favorite. Fran in Florida. Fran! Jim Kramer, greetings from Ormond Beach, Florida. Of course. Jim, I know you like Blackstone, but what are your thoughts on KKR? Oh, I like KKR. Come on, they're brilliant, guys. I know the distribution's low right now, but I'm never going to go against those guys. And yes. I was in favor of Blackstone more than those. One more. Let's go to Jonas in Missouri. Jonas. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Canopy Growth CGC has been trending up in the last few weeks. Do you think this stock's a buy now or should I wait for a pullback? Canopy? I like Canopy. It just had a big spike. You buy a little and then you let it come down. And that, ladies and conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. You know what drives me crazy? You'd think that the brokers and the exchanges would want to entice more people into the stock market, right? Even under the most cynical interpretation imaginable, they make more money when they get more people into the casino. But in practice, it's like no one cares about making the market safe for individual investors. And I think that's a shame, because right now, stocks are the best asset class in town. What are you going to do? Put your money in bonds, CDs? Tenure currently yields 2.57%. Stocks are the best choice at the moment. I just wish someone, the brokers, the exchanges, the government, would do something to make the market more hospitable for you. And when I say I, I do something, I have a three-point plan for the restoration of stocks as an asset class that can benefit regular people. First, the endless creation of ETS, it's got to stop. 
They're draining the life out of the markets, allowing fast money to whip in and get out around all sorts of rules to prevent too rapid declines or advances. Of course, bear raids are, are much easier to engineer. Hence why Franklin Delaware Roosevelt included the uptick rule in the 1934 Securities Exchange Act that created the SEC and really kind of in 38 fleshed it out. I want to bring back the uptick rule, where you can only short a stock on an uptick, a rule that was repealed in 2007. The next year, we had the worst crash since the Great Depression. Genius move. Anyone who favors public investing wants to bring back the uptick rule. But that's the problem. There are powerful vested interests that don't really care about public investing. For example, the uptick rule gets in the way of how ETFs operate. And that's like the biggest business today for the stock market is ETF creation. Well, they need the equal ability to go short along quickly. For 70 years, the regulators said, nope, shorting stocks should be made more difficult. But those regulators were captured by the industry, and the industry has a bias toward institutions, not you. Now, hardly anyone speaks for the individual except for, I don't know, me. You wouldn't get the kind of hideous, lightning-fast sell-offs like we had around Christmas time if we changed the rules back. But there's so much money in ETFs that a restoration of the uptick rule seems pretty impossible. Don Quixote over here. I'd be happy if the SEC would simply start assessing the impact of all these ETFs on the lack of liquidity in the market and the exclusion of the individual investor. Second, we need to return to the days where regular people could own 100 shares of stock in companies that they liked. In the old days, when a stock hit 100, the CEO would split the darn thing and show of solidarity with the individual investors. You usually get a three for one. I know in theory splits aren't supposed to matter at all, but this was something that excited regular people who could now come in and buy 100 shares the preferred amount. Unfortunately, the great stocks of this year at Alphabets, Amazons, Netflix, they're all sky-high dollar amount prices where few individuals can afford to buy 100 shares. What's the argument against splitting your stock? Institutions end up paying fewer cents per share in commission if they're buying one share of Amazon rather than, say, four shares after a split. Your index fund does benefit, too. But these high share prices have driven away you driven away the little guy, causing so many people to miss out on this magnificent rally because stocks seem too expensive on a dollar amount. I know it's irrational. I know we should be able to convince people to buy 10 shares of Amazon instead of 100. However, people aren't always rational. And this was one of the cases where we were consistently irrational in the same way. In short, you split your shares, you bring in more money. Plain and simple. I want more people in these great stocks. I really do. Finally, I want to see the heads of the exchanges and the SEC and some key industry CEOs come forward and have town square meetings about how to bring back individual investors. They used to be the bedrock. Look, the system's broken. You and I both know it. Even if stocks keep going higher, individual investors won't come back to this market. They're still fleeing until we make it more accommodating for them. End of story. Stick with Craig. Last week, Darius and Damcheck just put up an unbelievable quarter for Honeywell. I thought it couldn't be equal. Then today... Greg Hayes from United Technologies put up another amazing quarter. And there we had Otis coming back. We had climate controls good. But this Pratt and Whitney aerospace is incredible. Aerospace is the solution behind Honeywell. And aerospace is why United Technologies, that, that incredible acquisition they made, Collins. All I can tell you is aerospace is still big. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Drew Kramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. 
CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.